Welcome to the Impact Junkie Show, where we are loving people. We are going places and we are changing lives. And I'm so happy to welcome to the IJ Show my very good friend, Joe Pasqualicchio. Joe, welcome. Welcome to the IJ Show. Thanks, Philip. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to be here with you today. Man, so you all are in for a treat today. You're going to hear Joe's story. We're going to dig deep into you know, the you, love people, go places, change lives. We're going to dig into the chapters. And Joe is a portfolio manager at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund in New York City. He is a brilliant one of the most brilliant finance men I know, and we have some funny stories we'll share about how I learned that. We talk a lot about God nods, and Joe's one of those people in my life that it's truly a God nod, that he came along, that our lives have overlapped, and he's one of those amazing characters in my story, and he's also impact um, investment advisor for Impact Junkie, and has not just impacted my life, but so many other Impact Junkies, and is doing amazing work, which we're going to dig into. And one more fun fact that you're going to learn about today is we actually met at Harvard and did grad school together and served together on student government. A lot of amazing stories, a lot of fun times together there as well. So Joe, l before we dig into your story, talk a little bit about the work you're doing now and and where you are and, and, and what you're doing in the finance world. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a portfolio manager in the in the public equity space. I mainly focus on uh, TMT sector, which is technology, media, and telecom. Um, also covers you know software, entertainment, and things tangential to that. So it's a super fast-paced, exciting space where things are changing every single day. So it keeps you on your toes. You know, we're our 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 job is simply to go find great investments and and produce outsized returns. In the marketplace, and so it's it's exciting to go through the news every single day, um, uncover you know new stories, and and make the best possible investments we can. So, Joe, you are a wizard with spreadsheets. You are a man, and there's a funny story I'll tell about Harvard in one of our classes that I just don't know. He walked out of this this test. Well, I guess I'll tell it now. No. Out of this this fine, we were in the same class together, investment management class. This one problem, I was struggling with the the problem set, and Joe was like the first one out of the classroom. And I messaged him, and I was like, man, that was tough, wasn't it? Wasn't that tough? And he's like, that was a breeze. It was no problem whatsoever. Uh, and Joe is also the kind of guy that will, we were trying to make a decision on a ski trip. And Joe, to give you a, the, the level of decision-making and how he can pull emotion out of his investment decisions, actually pulled together this beautiful spreadsheet of all the options weighing us on this ski trip, which I think is just such a great little snippet. But we, we say we're, we are an on, a network of entrepreneurs and investors hooked on solving these big, hairy, audacious problems in the world, right? So for those who may not be as familiar with the investment world, and before we dig into your story, can you talk a little bit about the different types different ways that people can go in the investment world and different options that are out there? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Philip. I, I mean, there's, there are there are a million options out there on how to invest. Um, and there's a couple core ones that you typically see, you know, coming out of a, a business school, you know, environment where, where we met, you know, one popular 
place to go, obviously, is where I'm at now, which is hedge fund or public market equity. You know, mutual funds would fall under that category as well. And we could talk about the differences between those. The other popular places to go are private equity and venture capital. So, you know, they're all a little bit different. You know, venture capital tends to be newer companies, either very early seed stage or companies who are on round one, two, three of their investment cycle. So pretty early stage companies, they're looking for capital. They may or may not have a proven product or service yet. Maybe it's just a concept or a management team with an idea or a problem that they want to tackle. So it could be that early stage, or it could be someone with a product, but it hasn't been marketed or distributed. Uh, it's not sold or on shelves yet. So there's a few different stages. There's early stage and later stage venture capital. Um, those are private investments. They, you know, they're intent, they, they're not open to everybody like the public markets when you're investing in public equity. And then there's also uh, private equity, which I mentioned, which is very similar to venture capital. Um, the difference is it tends to be later stage companies that are more fleshed out and fully developed. Sometimes companies that are even at late, you know, very late cycle, very mature companies, and somebody's looking to reinvent the company or improve cost structure or re- you know monetize the business in some way, you know, now that it's more mature. So the checks are usually a little bigger in private equity um, compared to venture capital. So you tend to do much bigger deals. But again, these are those are both private. You know, they're not open to everybody out there. There are some really cool platforms out there, you know, trying to allow people like, like us to go out there and invest in these venture capital and private equity deals, you know, whether it's through crowdsourcing or other means, which I find very interesting. But public equity, what I do, it's kind of cool to talk about because actually everybody at home can also invest in the same stocks that I do. And so it's really, it's really neat to be able to talk to people about it because they can, you know, it affects their lives. They probably have a 401k account or, you know, another brokerage account. And um, it's kind of, you know, the news flow that impacts the stock market is something that everybody can uh, discuss and kind of understand. So it's fun to be in that part of the uh, business. Cool. And I know like some people, they hear about hedge funds or something they've seen in the news. And we're going to talk about how you ended up here at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund managing portfolio manager, which is epic. Um, But before we dig into your chapters, your scenes of your movie, wanted to talk a little bit about the the shift you're seeing around impact in the investment space and this sort of desire that you've, we've had a lot of conversations and worked with a lot of investors, um, both from the investor standpoint, the entrepreneur standpoint and business owner and, and startup, the founders and the customer kind of the whole kind of spectrum, if you will, sort of seeing the shift towards impact. It's huge. I mean, it is a major force. Certainly it comes up all the time. You know, when I first started, in the investment industry, there weren't a lot of discussions around it. It was out there. Um, but now you're seeing it every single day. I'm getting emails, phone calls. You're just, you're hearing about it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the investment world now that's not going away. And it's only getting bigger. Um, there are a lot of investors who only want to invest um, in what they call ESG, you know, socially responsible investing. They won't invest in any companies that aren't fitting certain criteria. For those that don't know, talk about the acronym, the ESG. Yeah, you know, environmental, social, and governance. So they're looking at all of the different parts of, you know, the responsible investing chain and saying, is this a company that I want to invest in? Everybody's criteria are a little bit different, but they all kind of follow the same, you know, pattern. Are, 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 Are these companies respecting our environment? Are they socially responsible? Do they have good governance and management? 
you know, and if, if they don't, that might be a red flag uh, for risk um, in that company down the road. And it's not something um, a lot of these investors want to tolerate. Um, so, you know, for example, it might be a company that maybe a casino, right, gambling, or it could be a firearms company, or maybe a company that heavily pollutes into the environment to make whatever product or service they're, they're, they're offering. So that's, that's a huge part of the public investing space. And then on top of that, there's a lot of, you know, investors who want to expand their portfolio to include impact investing. They want to know that their dollar is not only making a return, but it's also making a difference in the world. And that's becoming, uh, you know, a much bigger piece of the equation as well. And there's not as many funds out there or opportunities to do that. And so it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, the growth in that, you know, emerge over time. I think if we talked about this, you know, 10 years from now, you know, we would look back on it and realize we're just in, you know, the first inning or very early stages of, of what's going to happen here. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, we've had lots of conversations with investors as well that maybe have a lot, had a lot of money, you know, have, have done well financially, but there's still that desire, like that hunger of like, what, what is it all for? Right. Yeah. Need a lot of money, got all the cars and all the houses and, but something's missing. There's that desire to see that, you know what it's, once you get to it, you know, down to it, money is not just the goal the end of this, this is not just to have the biggest amount of most amount of money, but what have you done with that? And how have you impacted lives in a positive way? Right. I know we're hearing it's a great, it's a great point. And I, you know, I know people being in the hedge fund industry, there are a lot of people who have been singularly focused on just making the most amount of money possible. You know, it is something that happens. Um, but I, you know, and I do, I won't, I won't obviously won't say anybody personally, but I do know people who have made a lot of money and they have the home and the vacation home and the other vacation home. Uh, and they have all of the cars and, you know, at the end of the day, when you're, when you're trying to accumulate all of that, it may feel like you're on a mission, but once you actually get there and you kind of get to the finish line, you know, it, it's very kind of hollow. You're like, well, what do I do now? What's next? Right. Because you, you, you're not really, you haven't fulfilled the desire that you have. You thought that stuff would actually give you that fulfillment, but it doesn't because, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you haven't created anything with it. It's just, just stuff that's sitting there. You can enjoy it, but it gets old and it doesn't provide a lasting fulfillment. So I think there are a lot of investors out there, whether it's their full-time job or something they're doing aside from their full-time job that want exposure to use their mind and their skills, but to, to, to place them into somewhere where there is impact. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, get more fulfillment from. Absolutely. And there's such a, um, there's a lot of awe with the position that you're in, like that a lot of people are striving, a lot of people trying to get into MBA programs and trying to, you know, work their way up and strive and to be where you are and to do the work that you're doing. And it's so awesome, Joe, that you're not just satisfied with that, but you're working to change the world and to use your skill. We say do more with what you've been given, right? That's one of the biggest things we talk about. Start something that changes lives. And so, man, you have such an awesome knowledge set, a set of experiences and gifts, man, that is really special. And to use those skills to change lives and and to impact the world is awesome. So let's talk about this. Let's dig into your story. Uh, Y'all know if you've been through our like core IJ programs, you know, we start with you and understanding your story, the chapters of your life, not just the what you did, but why you did that. 
and helping you to, to uncover your big, hairy, audacious problem. So Joe, take us on a little journey with you. Let's start. And I may ask you to go in, in depth a bit more, but go and start wherever you'd like, but to walk us through your journey. Sure. Thanks. Uh, I've always wanted to to write a book. So maybe, maybe this will be a, <laughs> we'll start it right here. A rough draft. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I grew up in um, the Niagara Falls, New York area of the country. It was a great place to grow up as a kid. I remember going to the falls. It was my basically, you know, five, 10 minute drive from where I lived. So it felt like you know, it's a natural wonder of the world, but it's in my backyard. So it was a really cool place to grow up. And, you know, my parents, you know, their, their, their parents had come over from overseas. So I, you know, they were second generation and third we weren't business. We weren't like, you know, we weren't plugged into like the business world. And like my dad didn't, you know, his, his grandfather didn't go to Harvard. And, you know, it was kind of like we were plugged into that world. So, you know, where I am today is miles away from where I was then, but it was, it was a foundation that was really important to build all of the, all of your, you know, your reasons why. Right. And, you know, the first thing I noticed growing up, you know, in terms of developing a professional skill set was I was very good at math and science. It just came to me naturally. I was always, well ahead in, in those subjects compared to where I should have been, which I was as good in the other ones as well, but those were the ones that stood out. And, you know, the guidance counselors, you know, they say, well, you, you're good at math and science, you have to be an engineer. And so that, that's <laughs> kind of the, they, they push you in that direction. Like there's probably 10,000 careers where if you're good at math and science, you can uh, excel. But, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're in high school, there's probably like five careers they push you into. You're either like a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, like it's, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I did go to school for engineering that I, I, I started out looking for, you know, the best engineering schools I can go to. What are the top, I got the books, you know, all of the, the top 10 engineering schools and like, you know, all of the online rankings and U.S. News and World Report and where do I go to, to the best possible engineering school? But funny thing happened after interviewing and applying to dozens of schools and, and really taking it seriously, I had it down to like a top three. And as I was deciding, uh, a letter came in the mail from the University of Pittsburgh. It was a very short application, I'll say, uh, compared to the other ones. Uh, they made it very easy for me. And, um, you know, my, my father was like, well, you know, you should just fill it out. Like, I know you're, you're deciding between these three top engineering schools. You'll probably go to one of them. But, you know, they sent this to you. They waived the fee. You know, j just fill it out. So I fill it out thinking like, oh, you know, my dad's making me waste some time. But whatever, I'll fill it out, make him happy. And then they sent me a letter back and they were like, hey, we were really impressed with your application. Um, can you come visit? <laughs> and so I was like, all right, well, you know, we have a relative in Pittsburgh. You know, why not? We'll go down, visit our, our relative in Pittsburgh and, and check out the school. And when I got there, I was just blown away. Um, I had been to dozens of other schools, you know, like top tier engineering schools. But when I got to Pitt, I was just blown away. The campus was beautiful. People I met were like just so engaged and so ready to talk about not just engineering or, you know, just, just about everything in life. And it was clear that there was a different tone and the extracurricular, you know, activities that you could join and the, op the, you know, the options to kind of enrich yourself outside of the classroom were just overwhelming. And so I thought it was the best place to go, you know, after all of this time spent months and months and months spent, you know, whittling down which engineering school I should go to, I went to Pitt. It turned out to be an amazing decision, not for the reasons I thought at first, but, you know, it, it, because, because, of all the things I wound up doing there outside of the classroom. I did do very well in engineering while I was there, um, but I had an experience on student government. So I thought it was really cool that there was a student government. I went to a meeting on a, kind of an off chance. I think they sent, you know, probably an email to all the freshmen saying, hey, if you're interested in 
student government come to this meeting. So I went and I just thought it was really cool the way Pitt did it. They had a president, eight board members, and, and this group determined how you know millions of dollars of student activity fee money would be spent at the university. Um, and they also engaged with you know the chancellor of the university, the deans of the different schools, and you know civic leaders in, in the community kind of determine a lot of the policies that would happen on campus and off campus in the community. And you were able to give the student perspective and kind of influence those. And so I thought it was just a really awesome thing to get involved with. And so I joined, you know, a committee. It was kind of a, I just joined a committee. Uh, I think it was academic affairs. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly. It was a long time ago, but I think I joined the academic affairs committee, which you could just sign up for. Um, and that wound up leading, you know, to me eventually running for a board seat, one of the eight board seats. And I, I was on the board for two years. Um, and then my final year at Pitt, I ran for student body president. And it was a crazy election. I think there were more people running that year than there had been in the past. So it was super, super stressful. Uh, you know, I can only imagine what our real elected leaders go through during a campaign because I, I thought it was like a war. I, what you know, I, what I, led you to that, like putting your name in to run for president? Like what was yeah. the motivation or your thinking or... Because it didn't sound like you kind of were drawn to that initially. I mean, maybe you were, but... Seeing that what you could do uh, with that opportunity and all the people you could meet and all the lives you could interact with and all of the, you know, changes you could make, it just, it just seemed like such an amazing, unique position. And so, you know, having spent essentially three years on the student government and in, in, in learning all about how it works, you know, I, just, I felt like I had the skills and the best, you know, the best knowledge base to to be president of the student government and so i did really feel like i would be the best person for the role at the time which i think is important um you know i, I believed that i would do a good job in that role and that the other students you know at the, the university respected what i had done so far in student government and so it, it made sense uh yeah. but i had some tough competitors so it could have gone another way but i'm glad i'm glad it didn't cool so you're at pitt so you finished right. your undergrad that's right then what happened? Right. Well, you know, that that experience really changed my trajectory because before that I was going to go out and be an engineer. I had done internships at some of, you know, the largest, you know, U.S. engineering companies. I had done a few internships uh, at government agencies as well and with engineering. And, you know, they were fine, but it felt like something was missing. And, you know, that student government experience really was energizing for me. And so I thought, you know, maybe there's something I could do in the business world that looks a little more like student government, where I'm kind of going from place to place, trying to help solve problems, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the on campus and off campus community. And it kind of, I, I actually literally, uh, this is, this is, this actually happened. I, I typed, you know, how do I go around from place to place making things better as a, <laughs> as a career? I think I typed it into like Google like back in like 2000, you know, seven or something. You were searching back then. You're like, how do I love people, go places, and change lives? Basically, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and, and, and Google spit out, it spit out management consulting. <laughs> I had never heard of the term before, you know, and I was like, what's this management consulting? And so I learned about, you know, the McKinsey, Bain, BCG, uh, Booz Allen, you know, group that, you know, you learn about when you're researching management consulting. And I thought that was, oh, this is really neat. You get to fly all over the country or world and you get to work on really cool, exciting problems for different companies. And every day is kind of different and um, different challenges arise and you work on different projects with different people and different teams and it just seems super exciting. So 
you know, I, I, I wound up getting a job at Booz Allen Hamilton out of school and started my career as a management consultant. And so that's kind of how that happened. So, you know, I was, I, I think at each turn so far, and like, you know, what I've, what I've been mentioning to you, there's been, you know, some, something that changed the trajectory of what I was going to do. So it's been interesting how that's happened. Can you talk a little bit about how you felt about the consulting and this path that you were mm -hmm. on? So all of us are kind of like on this journey and yeah. things change over time. And one thing we thought was the way it was supposed to be turns out like, oh, mm -hmm. this is why I went through that. I'm picking up these skills and all this, but there's something else I'm headed to. And a lot of us have that sort of drive to, to keep pushing like, okay, there's more, there's more. I mean, can you talk about like, I think there's a moment that you kind of had that with the consulting, right? To kind of shift to your next phase of life. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there's two parts. One, you know, Booz Allen at the time was uh, going through a situation where the government side and the private side were splitting apart. Um, I think, I'm not sure if it was Carlisle Group. I might, I might have that wrong, but I think it was some, someone like Carlisle Group, if it not them, was, was, was taking over a piece of it and, and the rest was going to, it was going to be separated. And so I, I wound up having my entire role shifted to something different when that happened and didn't really love, you know, what I was doing at that point. And I luckily was able to get another job at a different consulting firm, which I enjoyed a lot more, but still, you know, after doing it for three years, it, it just didn't feel, I wasn't super excited about it. I did love the work. I did love the people, especially, and it was cool to travel around and, and be on these different projects, but it, it wasn't hitting the passion point for me at that time i was it kind of came back to me like what's going on with that investing you know that i had always thought about in the back of my head but i didn't really know how to do it professionally but i was very interested personally and it was actually right around you know the financial crisis was taking place right around this time that's a perfect time to get into finance <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean it was like the market is on sale and there's <laughs> chaos going on and um you know if you believe in the long term durability and, and success of of the world economy and, and the u.s economy then you know it, it's a great time to get involved and so you know that that was happening at this time when i was you know getting ready to apply to business school and so that investment came back up and i said you know how do i how do i i need to go do this and everybody i talked to said go back to business school you know go back to business school you know reset what you're doing and, and, and go make your investment um career happen that you want so i did i went back to business school. I applied to Harvard Business School and was lucky enough uh, to get in. And, you know, instantly, like day one at Harvard, you know, you're just bombarded by these amazing companies globally who want to come and talk to you and maybe give you an opportunity to come work with them. And that opportunity is just priceless. And so it was great to have that visibility and then to have all the resources at the university to kind of say, hey, like, this is this is what investing is. Like, as we talked about earlier on in the show, you know, what what, what are the different types of investing? Why are they different? Which one would you like to do? Um, now that you've identified that, you know, how do you go out there and make it happen? And that, that was a learning process. I actually spent my first summer internship at Morgan Stanley, um, what they call the sell side, you know, writing research reports that are, are read by investors and really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, I learned a lot. And I said, wait, no. wait, 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 you just <laughs> get past Harvard. Like you yeah. skipped over the Philip Harding connection. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a long conversation. So I, I don't, I don't know if we were ready for that. Before we even go there, you just kind of skipped over like, and then I got into Harvard business school, which is like a really big thing that we could spend. Like people do. That's all they do is just talk about how to apply, 
how yeah. to prepare, yes. how to like spend years of your life just creating your applications. And so well, I, I, spent, lot- I, I spent like a month of, you know, because I actually, when I decided, when I was sitting there in my consulting role and the financial crisis was happening and I decided, when I finally got around to deciding I wanted to apply to business school, I actually realized there was only a month before the round two deadline. Um, and if you know anything about business schools, yeah. you know, there's, there's usually like three rounds and they say the third round, your chances are lower. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, have, I have a month to do this round two application. I, I hadn't even taken the, um, the GMAT yet. So I had to like, I had oh, to like okay. study for that, take the exam, write the essays, uh, do all that. So I actually didn't apply to many schools just because I didn't have time. And I figured if I didn't get into one, then I would, you know, expand the scope for the following year. Um, but luckily, it didn't have to. But yeah, it was. It happened very quickly. So I, you know, I probably should have spent did, years planning this out. But I, so it was how close before the second round deadline? It was about a month. Yeah. All right. Maybe, yeah. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. I'm trying more, to get but, people to like you on the show, and I think a lot of people are disliking you by hearing you say that after spending years of their life trying to prepare the perfect application. That's amazing. Well, you know what, what was nice is they 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 forced you to have a very low word count on the essays. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you actually can't write that much. Um, I spent, I, I actually think I spent most of my time cutting back wording. That was like the, the, yeah. the time consuming activity. It was like, oh, how do I tell this, you know, this story and, and words. you just sort of like, oh, I'll go take the GMAT as well. That, that yeah. the GMAT test, if you don't know, is like an epic test that you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'll go take the GMAT. If you, unless you're Joe, I guess you might. Uh, I, that that's all I did for like a month. I like, I, you know. Every minute, I, they, are, was, I don't think you're completely human. I think you're part cyborg or something. That's well, Netflix, Netflix streaming wasn't really what it is today. So I didn't have, you know, there were there were not, not as many distractions. <laughs> distractions. So I was so able to spend every night. Signed up for the GMAT within like just a couple of weeks. Like, I mean, you can't even sign up that fast to like get the test. You got to book it in advance and go to the testing center and all that. As long as they have room. You just did it. I actually took. I actually took the. It was. It was kind of during the holidays, and so I actually remember. I, I took it. I was and visiting my family. I was. I was visiting my family back home during the holidays, and I actually took the test at a testing center uh, where my family lived. So, you know, I was. I was working in Philadelphia at the time, and my family was back in Niagara Falls area. So I actually was back for the holidays and found a testing center back there and, and took it there. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack here. So much to unpack. We're going to have to do multiple episodes here because there's a lot, a lot of gold nuggets that you drop in along the road. Um, and there's a whole episode we'll have to do on our connection at Harvard, which is so great as well. And the fact that we almost didn't connect and the fact that you right. were running for Harvard wide student president the first time I met you. And I, I didn't even know who you were and I actually voted for somebody else because oh. <laughs> I didn't know who you were. I know that and it still hurts to hear. <laughs> and we went out to eat. This is a, a short little story, but we went out after and it was you uh, who had just elected president, the, another former Harvard wide grad student president. And then later I would be elected student president a couple That's of right. years later. Um, and we went out and I remember being still like kind of self-conscious of like, well, all these people like Joe that are like so smart, right? And I remember saying something about, I felt this called a government and higher public service and maybe running for Congress someday. And that seems so scary to say out loud. And we were sitting in this little restaurant in Harvard Square and I 
these, the conversation, what are you going to do next? And this whole thing. And I said, well, maybe someday I'll run for Congress. And I kind of said it soft and mumbled and instantly you and the other Aaron, he's a, he said, me too. Like <laughs> it was no big deal. And right. in that moment I thought how it really had an impact on me about how our own mentality can hold, we can hold ourselves back. Absolutely. And it's just such a, anyway, that, there's a lot to unpack there. And then there are some campaign videos that you recorded that at some point we have to, we should do a live viewing of those. And uh, I don't know. Hot take uh, of those. We don't have to. <laughs> um, so Joe, it was a pivotal thing that our lives came together. Right. It was really special. And it was one of those God nods for sure. So there's a lot to unpack there that we'll get into over time. Um, you'll have to hang out with us more, come to more IJ events to get, pull all the stories out. But um, so I was still finishing up. Actually, we kind of overlapped. And so now you're off. So talk, let's talk a little bit about your journey here, this mm -hmm. transition in the finance world. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it, you know, it, it, it took place at, at the business school. You know, I, I remember uh, a, a, a guy who sat next to me in my first year classes said he was going to a mutual fund um, information session where they basically tell you who they are, you know, why you might want to work there. Um, I had no idea what I was doing when I went there. You know, I thought I've heard of this firm. I think my dad might use them. He might like use it as like a savings and trading account. Like, I, I don't, you know, what am I going to do there? Am I going like, to help people like open up trading accounts? Like, I, 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 and I kind of understand, oh, wow, there's, there's portfolio managers that are managing billions of dollars. Um, in creating stock portfolios, um, trying to outperform the market. Um, that's really, and, I, and it was kind of eye-opening. Wow, like this whole world is out there. And so that got me started doing research um, about mutual funds, hedge funds, you know, who they are, how they're different. Um, and, you know, like I said, I did the summer at Morgan Stanley on the sell side, um, which is, you know, providing research reports to what they call the buy side, which are the investors putting capital to work. Um, and, you know, through that learned a lot more about, you know, what the opportunity set was. Um, and so by the time it came to, you know, apply for full-time jobs coming out of business school, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go work for uh, a mutual fund in Boston, very, very old, you know, you know, you know, mutual fund has been established for, you know, a very long period of time, got to learn from people who had been doing it for decades, um, you know, long-term investors, who want to find the highest quality companies that are going to outperform, you know, for, for five, 10 plus years to come. Um, and, you know, very, very interesting work, very great place to learn um, how to invest in public markets. And so, you know, that was a great experience. I, I loved, I loved having that time to really, you know, work on an idea that you have in that setting because it is a long only setting which is what they say they don't short stocks they're only buying stocks um they tend to have you know somewhat concentrated portfolios and you know tend to make long investments so when you do make an investment it's going to be in there for maybe five ten more years and so a lot of work goes into that investment decision and um you know you're not making a ton of investments in each sector you're making a couple so they're gonna they have to be really count um, and so it's, it's just, it's super exciting uh, to do that work and make that decision. Um, and you are working with a lot of these like fortune, what do you say? Fortune 100 company CEOs were coming in and uh, trying to get you like to pitch you why you should be buying their stock and where they were headed. And 
I remember some of the conversations. I don't know if you can share all of them, but that was quite an experience. Yeah, it was. I think my first or second week on the job, um, Randall Stevenson, who was the CEO of AT&T at the time, was coming into the office. And um, I was covering the telecom sector was one of my coverage areas. And so, you know, I found myself within a week or two of joining, being in a room with one of America's biggest CEOs, uh, being responsible to kind of ask him questions and, and find out more about the company and whether it's a good investment, you know, for my firm. Um, so it was, it was amazing. I'm like, I'm sitting, <laughs> the guy, he's, he's actually, he was a very, very tall guy. And, you know, we were at this little table and I think his legs, like, you know, were like all the way through the table. I was like trying to like not hit him and like, uh, making sure he's comfortable because I was like, oh, I can't believe that they're letting me, uh, you know, interview Randall Stevenson here after being here a week. So, you know, it was a great experience. Um, and I wound up, you know, over the time I was there, I wound up meeting the CEO, CFO and other C-suite members of just about every major U.S. telecom and media company, um, you know, publicly traded. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a privilege to be able to, you know, sit, sit across from these people, learn from these people you know, ask them questions and, 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 and hear their answers. What was sort of like, what were a couple of things that maybe surprised you about those meetings with some of these CEOs? Was there anything that like, I didn't expect it to feel that way, or I thought it would be different. Is there anything that stands out to you from those? Well, they're, they're incredibly smart, you know, people and, you know, they all have a passion for what they do and, you know, they all love their companies and, you know, want to present them in the best light. And so, you know, I got, I guess one of the things you learn as an investor, you know, you're, you want to ask positive questions, right. You, you know, but there's also concerns that you might have. And so, you know, talking through the concerns, there's a way to do that um, where they're happy to kind of to kind of say, Hey, you know, this, these are some risks with our company. Here's what we're doing to address them. I found everybody to be very down to earth uh, for the most part. Not everybody. There's, there's some characters out there, but um, you know, really want the investors to understand their business and feel comfortable about making investment. Um, and they're, they've been very generous with their time. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember you showing, I don't know you showed me, but the, the reports like the, the five K or what the, the other reports that come out and there would be one footnote mm. on like page 37 that you would have like, some very specific question about this footnote that would really make people ner nervous and <laughs> kind of. It's like, funny that you remember that. Yeah, that's right. I, that that that's true. I mean, that was one of the benefits of working in that environment is you know the time to really dig deep into each company. Um, but yeah, I would I would find you know footnotes and oh that's really interesting. Like nobody's talking about this. That actually really matters for this company. How how is that not something people are talking about? And then in these meetings, you know, I'm able to say, hey, like, you know, what does this mean? Why did you put that there um, and, and kind of flesh that out a bit? And, um, yeah, sometimes people were pretty shocked that, you know, you, you saw that, you know, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be noticed. That was meant to just kind of go by. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So, you, yeah. So through your journey, you've got exposed. Man, it's so it's so interesting how this journey has opened up for you to, you know, having this sort of this theme developing at an early age and uh and just they kind of feels like you kind of went away from the path i know a lot of people you know feel that like oh i've kind of gone off track of what i originally and had this sort of moment of like that's right that's what i felt and then building realizing all these dots along the way that have been connecting you to where you are and you've had such a diverse set of experiences in finance so kind of walk us through like some highlights of 
to, to where you are now at a multi-billion hedge fund, dollar hedge fund in New York? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I loved what I was doing um, at the mutual fund. Um, but, you know, some hedge funds had been calling saying, hey, you know, we, we heard, you know, you're, you're doing well at this mutual fund. You've, you've been recommended by, you know, people in the industry. You know, we'd love to pitch you why you should come over and work at a hedge fund. Um, and ultimately, you know, some of the, some of the changes, you know, are, you know, they, they will let you as a very young analyst potentially manage money where you're making the actual investment decisions, um, you know, timing, sizing, you know, how big is the, how big is this investment going to be? When are we going to make it? When are we going to get out of it? Um, so having the control over, over that, um, and, you know, that was, that was very appealing, um, you know, hedge funds are, you know, much faster moving. So, you know, rather than making a five to 10 year investment, you know, what you'll see at a mutual fund, you know, a lot of hedge funds are making, you know, much shorter term investments. It could, it could be, it could be a multi-year investment. Um, and, it, but it may, may, may be a much shorter term investment. So the, the, the turnover is a little faster and you're also shorting stocks in a lot of cases, which is a, a totally different concept. Um, you know, a lot of people misunderstand the practice of shorting a, a stock, but the reason we do it um, is for risk management. So we, you know, we're trying to take less market risk where a lot of people are okay with the market going up and down. Um, they, they get that that's kind of how it works. At a hedge fund, you're trying to make absolute returns every single year. And so just because the market went down, you're still trying to make money, um, positive returns. And so shorting stocks takes some of the market risk out of the equation um, and, and you're trying to focus on generating what they call alpha, which is kind of a return separate from beta, which would be like the market's return. So, um, you know, the, the, the focus of a hedge fund is really trying to drive that and not just make money on the fact that the market was going up in any given period of time. That's great. I was going to ask you to go into it without going too deep into portfolio theory and all of this to get people a sense. And you, you, you walked right up, you tiptoed right to the edge and then you backed away. I saw you do it. <laughs> I'm ready to bust out some equations. Let's go. <laughs> oh man. I love it. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is education and the, and, and helping get you where you are and still obviously the journey still unfolding, but, there's some in the VCs or, or in, in, in the entrepreneur space or investment space that are saying like, you know, school's not what it's all, you know, all about. And especially higher education, you don't need to go to college or even paying people to not go to college, right? Mm -hmm. to, to say like, we'll start something. You just need to start something and get real world experience. What do you kind of say to that given your experience and where you are? Well, look, I, I don't, first of all, I don't think there's one right way to do things, right? So, you know, everybody's journey is going to look a little different and, you know, what's right for me or right for you or, or right for the next person is not, is not, the, is not the right way to do it. So I, I guess I'd start out by just saying, you know, I would never tell anybody that to, to you have to go to graduate school or, you know, you, you shouldn't go to graduate school. You should just go straight to work after high school. You know, like there, there is no one, one path that could, it could be made you know, success can be made a lot of different ways depending on the circumstances. For me, you know, getting my, getting an education was crucial. Um, you know, I I didn't really know like what my passion ultimately is. I didn't know how to do that professionally. I didn't have a concept of of, of being able to do that. And the education allowed me to find that passion. Um, you know, being an engineer gave me critical problem solving skills. 
you know, that I developed in my undergraduate uh, career um, that I use every day in the investment world, you know, building those spreadsheets you talked about uh, earlier. Um, but yeah, for me, it was crucial just to develop the problem solving skills to, to make the connections. I mean, the people you meet at these universities, um, you know, through your, through your extracurricular work, especially um, really changes your life, you know, to, to develop you as a person, you know, professionally, how to work with other people, you know, that's, that, that's all stuff you don't necessarily think about when you think about just getting a piece of paper that says, you know, you're now a, a bachelor of, you know, whatever um, engineering in my case, I'm, I have a degree in engineering. So, um, you know, it, it was super valuable. And then even after that undergraduate experience, you know, I had no clue how the business world worked and going to business school just was like, like, this is how all these things are interconnected government agencies, nonprofits, uh, you know, banks, you know, operating companies, how do they all work together? What's the ecosystem look like? Um, and it just, it just opens up that world and it, it, it changes your mind on what you can do in life and how you can make an impact. Speaking of impact, can you point, Talk us through a couple of, I know you have some stories in your life that have kind of helped inform, you know, your view of using investment as a sustainable way to bring change into the world. And um, maybe you can share a couple of those highlights throughout your journey that have kind of helped you even believe even stronger in the power of investment to make an impact. Sure, sure. Well, look, I mean, I really think that investing to make an impact can build a more sustainable impact over time, one that grows um, and, and changes the landscape for the better um, compared to just pure you know, charity or donation, if you will, um, that does solve an immediate need, but doesn't really solve a long-term problem. You kind of go right back to the same place, or in some cases, you, know, you wind up making things worse. You know, by, by helping out in the near term, you actually make things worse in the long term. Um, and, you know, I first came across that, you know, when I was helping, uh, you know, deliver food to families in need in my local um, church community, um, you know, we, we were working, we had a pantry um, and we would get food donations and we were trying to connect with families in the area that might need food assistance for whatever reason um, and, and, and hook them up with, uh, you know, food to get them through, the, through their weeks and months, um, you know, and, it, it, it was it was interesting to meet those families and a lot of people find themselves um, in need suddenly out of nowhere just just because of life circumstances and you get to understand you know not everybody who's in need is there because they did something wrong like a lot of times life just hits you um, so it was a, it was a real honor to be able to kind of help out um, but when but you know but when I would get to the homes you know there was a time when I had a truck full of food you know it was a flatbed truck totally open exposed. You know, I'd pull up to a driveway and I'm bringing, you know, two bags of food to a family. Um, and all of a sudden, all the neighbors uh, came out of the woodwork. You know, they knew who I was. They saw the truck. They saw the food. And they started approaching and, and trying to, to take the bags out and, like, thought that they, it was a free-for-all. Like, I was just bringing food. You know, take it if you want it. And I'm trying to explain to them, hey, this is all this is all marked for families who have already requested it. Like everything's prepackaged based on family size and need. Like you can't take this, you know, you can absolutely sign up and apply. We'll try to help you. Mm -hmm. um, and you just saw that there was like a real problem out there, but people expected, expected the food to be given to them, you know, every single week. But it hit me that there was no solution really, or there was no second wave where we were going to try to help these people, um, 
find their way out on their own. It was just continuously an expectation that we'll be there week after week to, to give them um, these goods. And like, and for that reason, it became an entitlement. Yeah. And obviously there's emergency situations, but you're right. When it, it's, it's easy to get sort of lulled into that from both sides, right? From, it, it, it can feel good to give, right? In the short term. It does, yeah. It, it feel good and like, hey, I'm, look, I'm a good person. Um, and it, right. it feels good to the receiver, but you, you go beyond the emergency once you move out of that. I mean, we see this, whether it's international aid or local community charities you're talking about as well, that we could actually become part of the problem, right? We can absolutely be, I mean, for sure. I mean, if you know, if you know, this food is coming week after week after week, you know, there's no, there's no immediate need to, to come up with a long-term solution. And then one day. You know, when that food runs out or there's too many people requesting and you overwhelm the food bank, you know, you're turning families down. Um, there's jealousy amongst neighbors when they see somebody getting a shipment and they can't get one. Um, and you realize there's a much bigger problem here that, that needs to be solved. So in a world that you are living in and, you know, climb conquering mountains in, yep. and <laughs> is that's so driven by absolute return and well, mm. what's the number what's your number or whatever yeah. and do you believe that there's space for impact in that to be in in the conversation you know how how can we help i know you mentioned like you're seeing a big shift in that in that space um do you feel like that's going to become part of the equation we obviously work a lot on impact measurement and 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 bringing those measurements in besides just absolute financial right. return investment. I mean, do you really believe that's possible? I, I, I do, you know, and, and to touch on, you know, what you said first. Yeah. Like for me, you know, when you're, when you're not, when you're not engaging in impact, right. When you're just investing for profit, you know, it, it starts over every year. It's very, what have you done for me lately? You know, if you mm -hmm. made money last year, but this year you're not doing so well, you know, people will, people will very quickly walk away from you, right? It's, it's constantly producing a return year after year after year. And every January 1st, you know, or it just starts over again, you know, go do it again, you know, right? Like there's no lasting impact to what you're doing. So um, it's a good point that you brought up. And then, you know, like I said, going forward, I think that impact will be a bigger and bigger piece of the investing world. And, you know, you kind of made the comment, well, like, you know, it's not just profit so like are people okay with that you're not you're, you're doing things that are not purely profit motivated but i actually think from a risk standpoint when you're making an impact investment you're you're making an investment in something that's helping the community and i think there's less risk associated with that with that than when you're making an investment that might be damaging the community um, unpack that a little bit well you know it, when you when you think about there's, there's things that you know about a company today, but then there's a lot of unknowns, right? Like they come across as headlines, news stories. Um, you know, it might be something, you know, legislation was passed to stop something um, and that hurt this company and the stock's down a lot. Or, you know, there, were po there was poor management in place and it turned out, you know, there was some fraudulent activity at this company and hurts the stock price. And so, you know, when you ignore the, you know, sustainability and impact, um, you know, uh, pieces of the equation, you're actually exposing yourself to risks that you don't even, that you're not even really thinking about, not 
you know, not traditional financial risks that you can calculate, you know, with, with traditional valuation metrics, but things that um, can be identified and, and realize maybe I don't want to play in that space because there's a lot of risks. It could be in, en- in, in energy, right, where a lot of these companies are having a negative impact on the environment. Right? Could, could there be an oil spill that damages the company? Could there be laws passed in different countries which limits um, their extraction of resources? Right? Those are all risks that you might not think about today, but if you were kind of focused on you know, the environmental and social impacts of the investments you're making, you might have avoided those risks. And so I, I'm not sure that those risks are fully baked in um, to the asset prices um, today. But I think as people identify more and more of these metrics um, and they become kind of a factor um, in your in your risk model, um, you know the market should uh, weight uh, some of these you know more impactful investments higher and, and assign them a higher valuation. So it's moving from just oh that's a nice thing to do to this is vital to the future of our organization as well. That's right. I think people are starting to realize that there is a correlation um, between between returns and you know social corporate responsibility and sustainability and you know they're 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 interrelated and 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 you should companies should get a premium for for doing that and declaring those metrics and and making them you know available to everybody awesome so wrapping up this session a couple of last questions is both from an entrepreneur perspective and an investor perspective and you can answer this however you'd like if you'd like to combine it or answer them separately what kind of advice might you give in this space specifically to an entrepreneur or a founder who's looking for investment and would be talking to investors and then both also to a potential investor who's looking to invest in either impact in the impact space or be part of funds or what have you, what kind of advice might you give to them? Well, be future also, impact junkies that are coming along. Sure. Sure. Let, let me, well, I'll start out with some general advice, right? Which has been helpful to me. I mean, I, there's been so many moments in my, um, education and career where people have told me that something couldn't be done, right? You can't do that. That's too much. Or, you know, that's, that's, it's unlikely to happen. Don't, don't bother trying. Um, and I can, I can go into a few of those, but, you know, in each of those moments, rejecting that and saying, you know what, I'm going to make it happen. Um, and just, and just holding on a little longer than other people are willing to, um, can make all the difference in the world, Right. There was a recruiter um, who came to Harvard Business School, uh, I think my first year. And you know, I, I said, hey, you know, you're recruiting for hedge fund roles. I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, can, I, can you put me in front of some companies? I'd really like to, to interview. And they looked at my resume. They talked to, they talked to me about my background. I said, you know what? You don't have a chance. Like, you'll, never, you'll never work at a hedge fund. You know, don't, don't bother applying. You know, go, go back to consulting. That's what you did before. You know, that's what you know, go, go back and do that. I'm like, wow, like I'm at one of the greatest business schools in the world. And I have somebody telling me, you know, don't even try. You know, it was shocking. And, you know, obviously I didn't listen to that uh, advice one bit, but there's people like that um, who will kind of try to steer you away from your goals or tell you something can't be done. Um, you know, I had a professor in high school who said, you know, you'll never go to such and such university and, you know, he was wrong. And so people will kind of, you know, I had somebody tell me, you know, you can't be student government president and uh, still achieve, you know, a 4.0. Um, it's too time consuming, right? Like wrong. 
Um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you are ultimately the, the person who decides whether you can or can't do something. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who are very talented either get kind of, you know, influenced by these naysayers, if you want to call them that, or, you know, they just give up because something's too hard and they eventually just, just give up, say it can't be done, you know. I'll, I'll do something else. And that leaves a lot of opportunities for people who can dream big and kind of, you know, hang on and, and, and give it one more shot when everybody else kind of went home and, and quit. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for those people. Man, that's great advice. And that's right on track with why we spend so much time starting with you, right? And understanding your passion, purpose, and calling the BHAP that you're meant to solve. So when you hit those hard days, you know, it's rooted in something deeper and you're life is about something bigger than just this job or this thing. It's something bigger that you're working towards and that fights that you fight to get up. you fight to push on. Um, and in fact, when someone says it can't be done, it kind of gets you excited. <laughs> right. That's it, it does. I, I mean, for, for me, I think those are like, those are like the most motivating words. <laughs> Oh man, Joe, this is awesome. There's a lot more. We're going to keep the conversation going, but this is a great, thank you for being so open and sharing your story. And um, Joe is one of our awesome, like I mentioned, he's an investment advisor working with IJ on so many different projects and um, you got to spend more time with him if you're fortunate enough to do that. Um, and there's a lot more. We just covered the surface here, but thanks Joe for your time. So glad to have you, man. Yeah, this, Philip, this was great. I mean, I, I, I can't wait to see you in person again. Uh, you know, all, all of these uh, online calls and, and Zoom meetings today are, are great, but you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, oh, man. the real world again. Absolutely. All right, we got to close it out. We got to do our big X shot here. So we got to close out with some Xs. Woo! Love people, go places. <laughs> Love people, go places, change lives, everybody. We'll see ya. Peace. Thanks, Philip.